Welcome to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. I'm your host, Kristen Thomas. I'm a certified sex coach and clinical sexologist based in Kansas City. And I just love to talk to people about what goes on in their sex lives and relationships. I also enjoy good conversation about love, heartache, activism, or making change in the world. Be warned, you should probably be 18 and over and probably listening on your headphones. Thanks for tuning in. On this episode of Keep Them Coming, I am joined by Lita Rubinava. Lita was born in Belarus, but is currently in New Jersey and sits on the board of Body Politic. That's a queer feminist wellness collective and patient advocacy hub. Now, Lita herself is a feminist, an activist, and sexologist in training. Little little baby sexologist. I love it. Now, she believes Mm -hmm. that the personal is political and wants to help you authentically integrate both in and out of the bedroom. That's beautiful. Welcome to the show, Lita. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Part of, uh, well, we met on a webinar and something that came up during that was kink and feminism. So that is what we're definitely going to get into here in just a moment. That's going to be the bulk of our conversation. But I want to first know and tell our listeners, if you would, more about body politic and some of the work they've been doing. Absolutely, Kristen. So um, body politic was founded in 2018, I believe. I joined them in 2019. Um, And we were originally a feminist wellness collective, which we still are, but we were a media and events series. So we had a publication where we wrote articles informing the public about um, wellness topics, anything like yoga or um, sleep or nutrition, also talking about politics and how the two kind of integrate together. Um, And we held events around these topics and held panels with members of the community. Like for uh, a nutrition panel, we had someone from the queer soup kitchen And they organize a queer soup night where basically members of the queer community come and have soup together and just hang out and talk and use food as a source of community building and mindfulness. Uh, But then COVID hit and I think it was something like 60% of our core team, which was only 10 people, but 60% of our core team got COVID. (laughs) And our founder, um, Fiona Lowenstein, is a journalist and They wrote an article for the New York Times, an op-ed, about their experience. They actually, they're 26, they're a yoga teacher, were in peak of health when they caught the virus and ended up being hospitalized. Um, And they did get oxygen and they got released and went home, got sent home. And they fully expected the virus to resolve itself within two weeks, but actually realized that they had lasting hangover symptoms. So things like post-viral fatigue, GI symptoms, headaches, um, and coughing and shortness of breath just sort of long after the 14-day period. Um, They also realized that there was a lot of um, news at the time about how to avoid the virus and tips for kind of beating boredom indoors, but nothing that was actually inclusive of people that had it and got the virus. Um, And so because of that, um, we decided to form an online support group, an emotional support group for COVID patients. So you are a student at SCU, which is where I completed my certificate. I'm a certified sex coach and you're well on your way. So I'm so glad to have you a part of the SCU community. I'm glad to be a part of it. It's a wonderful, wonderful community to talk to on a regular basis, especially when you're isolated. <laughs> yes. And we are a unique group of individuals in a very good way. Uh, you know, the the sex positivity that exudes uh, when you're on those calls or you know, taking the, even just taking the courses just makes you feel like you're doing something different and that's going to be helping change people's lives. So welcome to the group. Thank you. And I'm really glad to be talking to you, Kristen, too. Um, It's a great place for networking as well. Absolutely. So I take it that you obviously had some interest in this space before you started at SCU. I mean, not not many people go down the path of wanting to become a sexologist or a sex educator just out of the blue. So what was your inspiration 
behind wanting to to go through this program and, and to become a sexologist? I started as a facilitator and community builder in the um, theater and events space and with the arts. And um, I was actually working at LaGuardia um, High School for the Arts when COVID hit. I was in the education space for that. Um, and like many people right now, I um, became unemployed. Um, and I went through the sort of like regular, you know, three month period of putting in job applications to things I felt I was qualified for anything from project management to just like theater technician work. Um, but then I kind of <laughs> burnt out a little bit, honestly, and I thought about the things that um, I valued and the things that I valued about community. Um, and I found that I have always been interested in psychology and people's identity. Um, even when I was in the theater space, I think the team of people that I worked with is what really got me um, up in the morning and got me going to those jobs. Uh, and I always did mm -hmm. say that when I was in college, if I didn't study theater, I would study psychology. And so on a whim, I just started mm -hmm. kind of researching masters of social work programs, um, and I did look up sexology programs like in institutes and universities, but they are surprisingly limited. <laughs> there, there's not that many um, just like gender study programs in universities. And also, I feel like there's a lot of uh, barriers to a lot of folks, especially in the mm -hmm. uh, people of color community and the queer community and just like low income families where there's a lot of um, restrictions that that most people don't see with people entering those kinds of fields. But while I was doing this Google search, um, Sex Coach University popped up and it just kind of clicked right away for me. It was accessible. It was flexible. It was something that I could do at my own pace and kind of take on from there, you know, move and it would certify me, you know, so it, it just, it just seemed like the right fit and the right kind of community. Um, I've never been one for shallow conversation. And um, I think that sex is a good way to get to the core of a person. <laughs> you know, when you're having a conversation and you start talking about, you know, their sex lives, uh, it's it's not <laughs> it's not shallow at all. <laughs> Absolutely not. I also am not one to shy away from a conversation that's got some depth to it. And, you know, I will forewarn you. If you don't already get it, when you are out networking or meeting people and you tell people what you do, you're going to get that wide-eyed look of shock and surprise, and they might not say much, but then they might find you a little bit later and pull you aside and word vomit all over you about what's going on. So just be prepared for that day because it will come. Oh, I love it. I'm excited. That's honestly what I look forward to most. If any of your listeners ever meet me in person, please. I, I'm all for the side pull conversation. Um, I think one of my strengths is, is making people feel comfortable and holding space in that. So you're in safe hands for sure. Good. Good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I tell people, they look at me and go, I'm so sorry I'm telling you all this. I'm like, it's okay. This is what I do. And I get it all the time. Just keep going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So when you think about, because we each in, in our, all of us in our industry tend to have a, a focus. So have you given some consideration about what sort of populations or groups of folks you're looking to work with the most? Yeah. Um, so my interest is kind of twofold. I, I like talking about duality and integration. So I definitely am a part of the queer community and the LGBTQ community. So I'm perfectly comfortable within that space. And I get a lot of questions from my colleagues, um, which are a part of that space. And I also am interested in helping women um, because of the patriarchy and because of the way society is set up. Unfortunately, I find that a lot of women are uncomfortable with their own sexuality in many ways. Um, I personally struggle integrating my emotional side with my sexual side and sort of like the active kinky side mm -hmm. with the more like passive, like receiving <laughs> side of me. So I, I am open to working with anyone from the queer community with questions of how to integrate their identity in the bedroom. Um, and to any woman that has 
issues integrating her own personal identity with the sort of outward identity that she believes she's supposed to present to the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I have definitely had clients who come to me. I mean, the, the first thing most people are coming to us for is is permission. They're looking for some sense of normalizing what, what they're doing, that it's okay. And our first step is helping people feel like they are normal, you know, as long as it's safe, sane, and consensual and all that good stuff. Like, yes, there's probably someone out there who likes what you like too. But, you know, you talk about that duality. Now, one of the mm-hmm. things that a lot of females especially struggle with when they're in that kinky space or they they start finding like, ooh, I, I might like some of this stuff that qualifies as BDSM, that it can be a struggle. So actually, I had a listener question that came in a couple weeks ago. So you're the perfect guest for this. But the the question was basically – they're enjoying spanking. They're enjoying that contact play, but they're also then afterwards struggling with things that feminism has told them about, you know, whether that's wrong or that they're allowing their partner to beat them. They're like all sorts of questions bubbled up for them. So let's talk about something like that. How do you think that people should approach starting to integrate that duality of I am a feminist, but I also like something like getting spanked or degraded or things like that. And and, and degradation, I want to say, is very specific to some kink. So I'm not saying like all kink is degradating, but Mm -hmm. that is a very specific subset. So what do you think are some of the first steps people need to take for that? Yeah, well, uh, communication, communication, communication. I cannot stress that enough. Um, I mean, what, whoever your partner is, I'm assuming if you're getting spanked, you're not spanking yourself, although that's perfectly acceptable. Absolutely. Um, talk to the other person, make sure there is consent, make sure you're both comfortable with what's going on, make sure that there's safety, um, and grounding involved. So, Something like spanking and degradation, whether you're the person receiving it or giving it, um, it it really touches our emotional core. So making sure that you're grounded and that you feel safe is the most important thing before, during, and and after. So, you know, aftercare is so important. People often are so stressed about the the act itself um, that they don't think about sort of kind of like this term that I like called sexual hygiene. So just as you would like take a shower and prepare for the shower and set up your shampoo, you know, like make sure that you are setting up, you know, a blanket or candles, you know, smells, anything sort of that will get you in your physical body and make you feel safe. Or if it's like talking to your partner, making sure your partner knows your safe words, um, If whatever makes you comfortable, make sure you communicate that to your partner and make sure you have that set up beforehand. Um, And then like during the act, making sure that you have a way to tap out and escape, making sure that you're comfortable saying no, you know, whether it's a safe word or if it's just like, hey, like, you know, I gave you consent at the beginning, but now I would like to withdraw that, you know, that that's totally and absolutely fine. I find that a lot of women... Um, feel uncomfortable, you know, giving consent in the Mm -hmm. beginning and then realizing halfway through that they're not okay with it anymore. And that's highly problematic when you don't feel safe enough to say no in the middle. Um, I, you know, if you need permission, Mm -hmm. I'm here to say like, please, (laughs) if you feel uncomfortable, please, like it is totally okay to withdraw consent halfway through just because you said yes in the beginning does not mean that whatever is going on now is okay with you now. Um, you know, moods change, people change, actions change, like you can absolutely withdraw that consent at any time. Um, and you should absolutely feel safe to do so. Um, and if you don't, <laughs> I would uh, hesitate to kind of engage in these kinky behaviors because they do run very deep. Like I trust, mm-hmm. trust is also a very big thing. Um, and then yeah, like aftercare, if you do get kind of vulnerable um, and you enjoy being degraded, making sure that that doesn't sort of leak out of the bedroom into your relationship with that person, if you have one, you know, even, and it doesn't have to be romantic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be 
that they're your partner, even if it's just like a playmate or um, someone you're seeing, you know, one night stand, like talk to them, (laughs) you know, don't just like roll out of bed and walk away because that will, um, that tends to shock people emotionally and and it doesn't go Mm -hmm. away. It sticks around. So even if you don't feel comfortable talking to the person that you're engaging with, I would recommend journaling. I would recommend listening to music, sort of any of those like self-care grounding activities. I mean, whether it's going for a run, whatever, whatever works for you, taking a shower, just just breathing, honestly, like just taking a few deep breaths to make sure that you're you're back where you started, I think is really important. Those are all really good tips. Thank you for that. I those are pretty similar to the things that I have talked to with, with clients about that, about like setting the stage, talking in the moment, making sure that there's aftercare. Absolutely. Why do you think that it is for yourself, like I mean, we've all had conversations with our friends. I mean, there's plenty of conversations <laughs> out there talking about kink and feminism. And p- a part of me thinks about how do we get even get into the mindset that there is only like one way to express your sexuality if you are a thing, such as if you are a gay man, there's only one way to do it. If you are a feminist, there's only one way to do it. If you are a submissive, there's only one way to do it. Uh, why do you think that we get into these sort of one track minds with our sexuality sometimes? Um, well, I find that it's very societal. Um, I mean, people talk about the patriarchy a lot nowadays, just from a, from a women's perspective, but it, it's not just women. I mean, it is gay men. It is lesbian women. It is non-binary folks, whatever it is, even, even non-binary folks, you know, there's, there's this sense of like, you have to look a certain way to be non-binary or you have mm-hmm. to express yourself a certain way to qualify as that. Um, I think as people, we naturally, uh, we seek approval um, from the world around us. And unfortunately, nowadays, there's a lot of uh, stereotypes and a lot of judgment surrounding these identities. And people feel comfortable putting putting a label on someone and putting someone in a box. And that's why I find integration so vital and necessary. And not even in, this, in the way of like having to flatten your identity. Like you can be a feminist and be kinky. You can be a gay man and not sort of fit this, you know, either like I'm a masculine, you know, bear stereotype or I'm a feminine gay man. Like you can be a woman and prefer to be a dominatrix, like whatever it is that you are interested in, you can be both and not having to sort of, and and you can be both in different situations. Like maybe out in the street, you're, you know, and advocating for women's rights and in the bedroom, you enjoy a rape fantasy every now and then. And that is absolutely okay. It's all about the setting and all about being on the same page and making sure that you know where you're at and not um, needing to prove it to anyone else. But yeah, I do I do think it goes back to, to, to politics and to society and that people... People want to be comfortable with who you are. And I think what's important is that you're comfortable with who you are and nobody else, nobody else needs to, <laughs> needs to be comfortable. <laughs> Just you. Yes. I had a couple of clients are coming to mind specifically who both shared that they were in um, very dominant roles. They were always the decision maker. They were in charge and that when they came home to their partners, they fell into more of a submissive role. They let their partner be the dominant. And, and they both came to me looking for that permission about was, was that okay? Or what was wrong with them that they you know wanted to do this? And actually it was, it was so delightful to be able to look at them and say, what you're doing is actually absolutely normal. When you're out there in the world and you're one, you're the one that's having to do all the things, oftentimes you do come home and want to fall into a more submissive role. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I didn't do anything to change their habits or their behaviors, but the simple act of giving them permission that it was okay to be both of those roles was all it took for those women to simply accept that they liked kink and that they liked that version of kink. It's so powerful when you just give people permission. 
Yeah. Yeah. Normalizing behavior. Absolutely. You know, and people need a balance, right? Like maybe people feel comfortable being sort of like on and active all the time, but you know, I find that people generally have a balance where if they are the one in charge out in the world and they come home, they want to rest, right? They want to be taken care of. Or if perhaps they're a little more passive and anxious in daily life, like the bedroom is where their dominating side comes out because you're more comfortable with your partner. You're more comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know, when the clothes come off, you're vulnerable. You don't have to put on an identity for the world. You, you become, the inner identity of who you are rather than the outer. And there's, there's a perfect way to balance both for sure. Absolutely. You did touch on one fantasy there that I would like to explore a little bit more, especially for some of my listeners, because they may have heard it and gone like, Ooh, I don't know about that. But you talked about rape fantasy and what we also call consensual non-consensual play. Mm-hmm. I, I've definitely talked about this before, not, not with a client, but in, you know, just talking about the subject. I also saw a very interesting short film during Dan Savage's Hump Fest in 2019. It's a five-minute short, and they show at the beginning what does look like, you know, a woman being, you know, taken and she's thrown on the bed and her clothes are being ripped off and she's fighting back and there's slapping and there's kicking and there's biting and there's all sorts of things, but there's no audio to that part. What is the audio is the narration of her and him explaining what gave her this idea, why she was willing to explore it with this partner, what it released for her and things like that. But it is a, a, a deeper topic that on the surface, a lot of people don't understand. So I want to explore that a little bit more with you. Um, yeah. Tell me about what some of the conversations or, or things you've learned about this sort of play. What's your view of it? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I want to say that that film is super interesting and absolutely fat. I would love to watch it for sure. I think representation in the media is a huge part of giving people permission and seeing themselves in media and in the outside world is uh, very validating to most people. So I want to say that right off the bat. But um, personally, I mean, my partner and I <laughs> have discussed this um, at length. She She expressed to me that uh, she gets a rise and is turned on by this kind of idea of like a no being a yes Um, and like it being kind of no, but in reality, like you want that thing to happen. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's absolutely something that we had to talk about because I mean, and I find personally too with us, I, I, I find that I have, trouble distinguishing between sort of what I'm supposed to do. Um, Whereas like if I've watched porn or if in previous relationships, the woman is very vocal and, you know, I know what my partner likes. So I'll just, I feel pressure to adhere to it um, versus like, this is truly what I want and I can relax and, and, and be mindful of what's going on in the moment. And I don't have to be more vocal than I feel like being, or I don't have to give permission where I don't feel like giving permission. So it's kind of um, an ongoing conversation for us to, to balance that kind of play where um, there's, we have to be very, uh, there's a very thin line between, between play and, and it hitting a personal spot. So like, play where um, I'm playing a character and and then you know it being real and and hitting me personally and emotionally so so that's absolutely something that my partner and I have discussed and and had to balance out I take it you all have a safe word and everything oh absolutely yeah um we I mean First, first there was, there was a discussion about making her comfortable with it because her, her, her personal reaction was also just like one of guilt and one of shame. Even when she brought it up to me, Mm -hmm. she was just like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to talk about it. This is something I thought about when I was younger, but I don't know if I'd be comfortable, you know, doing this to you. I mean, I don't want to hurt you. And I'm just like, no, like it's, it's fine. Like it's something that's normal. It's something that I've encountered with previous relationships. And I have been in a previous relationship where we engaged in that. And I, we didn't have the proper conversations, unfortunately, beforehand, like there wasn't a safe word. And I absolutely, I, it was my partner, we were dating. 
Um, and I think he ended up slapping me <laughs> in the middle of us having sex. And it kind of just shocked me. And I, I immediately froze up and he got off of me and was like, are you okay? Checking on me. So it's very visceral. It's very physical and it's immediate and, and your partner and you should be comfortable reacting to it in the moment. So like with her, I was just like, you know, it's happened to me before. I've experienced this. This is, other partners have brought this up to me. It's absolutely normal. And like, whenever you're comfortable trying it out, if you're comfortable trying it out, we can discuss, you know, a safe word and and what's a yes and what's a no and what's okay. We actually, uh, we uh, did the will want won't sheets. I don't know if you um, have utilized those with your clients or are familiar with that. Oh, I've done yes, no, maybe lists. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's similar to that. Uh, yes, no, maybe. Will want won't. Just it's a list of like it's it's extensive. I mean, there's twenty plus pages um, of just like you know actions and body parts and receiving and giving and and certain sex toys you can use. I mean, down to the material of the sex toy that you're comfortable with, and you basically just go through it either alone or with your partner, and you check like I will do this. I want to do this or I won't do this. Um, so like, it's just like a, I want to, as in like, yes, absolutely. Like, yes, please more. Um, or just like, I will, like, we need to talk about it or like, we can, you can convince me to, or I'll do it, but it doesn't bring me, put. it's like a yes, but like, I could take it either way. And then just a won't just like a straight out no. So we've, we've completed those together too. And, you know, we've talked about it also just like outside of an intimate setting. I mean, we, we were sitting in our bedroom, but we, it wasn't, it wasn't a sexual context per se. So communication beforehand, like I said, is, is absolutely key for, for those kinds of things as well. I'm going to have to check out the will want won't list. Uh, it sounds a lot more extensive than what I've you know often directed people to. And when you bring up the all the nuances that can go along with this. Yeah, you kind of need something that's really detailed because like you say, when you're getting into something like consensual, not consensual, and uh, you aren't outlining things like I don't want to be slapped in the face or I don't want to be choked or I don't want it to be from behind, That those are critical pieces of information. But if you're not going into it beforehand, kind of considering all of the possibilities, it can be a difficult time in the moment to know what you're going to be okay with. Yeah, I think my favorite, a couple of my favorite parts I would like to highlight off this list, there's a whole section on um, biting and then a whole section on like biting slash nibbling, right? And that was like (laughs) a, a, a kind of a big portion of discussion between me and my partner where I was just like, uh, I like biting only on these parts, like only on my neck, maybe on my nipples, but not on other parts, you know? So we were just discussing like, and it was like biting slash nibbling on, and it would go like scalp, ears, neck, nipples, boobs, penis, whatever, like all of the body parts, um, just down the list. And there were like 15. And I was very much just like, well, you can nibble here, but you can't bite there. Or like, you can bite here, but you can't nibble there. And even though it was in one category, I was just like, it really depends on the pressure, right? And the sensation and the area. And it was such a thin line for me between biting and nibbling that I was just like, we we need to talk about this and we need to make sure, you know, and as you were saying, like, that context greatly varies. I also want to uh, bring up a term that these sheets taught me that I did not learn before um, is the word uh, valprehend. So the way the sheets are organized, um, will, want, won't, is like there's beneficiary of bliss and then purveyor of pleasure. So basically whether you are the receiving or the beneficiary or the purveyor or the giving of the pleasure. And each partner has both sheets and then there's like a third addendum for toys. But um, when you're doing this with a partner, like one partner will have the purveyor of pleasure out and you'll have the beneficiary of bliss out and you'll compare notes on those two and then they'll switch. Right. And you'll talk about who's giving and receiving. So there's this term um, valprehend and it's like anally valprehend and it's, I had to Google it. It's a more active word for receiving because the thing is, even when you're receiving, you can be the dominant partner. So valprehend is sort of like grasping or latching onto rather than like, it's a more active uh, word or way of phrasing receiving. 
where receiving can be very passive for some people. So I just wanted to say that because that was new for me and it was incredibly empowering. (laughs) I love that term. Thank you for teaching that to even me today too, because I think about that in, I, I teach a workshop on cock worship. And Mm -hmm. I talk about how this is not about you like getting face fucked (sighs) and it's not about just receiving. It is about giving a blowjob. It is about worshiping the cock and doing all that. That is a great term. I will integrate into that workshop because it makes sense. Yeah. um, I'm so glad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that's kind of the position I find myself in a lot is like, I am, um, I also have taken the BDSM kink quiz and I think I'm a, I'm a brat. Like I'm really turned on by the idea of yeah. fighting, but I, I don't fight to win. I don't fight so I can dominate, but I like being a little naughty and fighting back, but I, I fight to lose and I receive pleasure from submitting, but I don't see it as, as a passive thing at all. I see it as an active thing. I see it as like dropping the handkerchief and then sort of going back to, um, I guess maybe the gender identity discussion is that you don't have to be passive as a woman. I mean, I, for a long time, I I pondered the question of whether I was non-binary or whether I felt more comfortable as a female. And I think the thing that I kept coming back to is uh, a discussion I heard between Evian Whitney and then Dano, highly recommend, by the way, the um, Sexually Empowered Woman podcast, uh, but they had a conversation about gender identity and this I like idea that so Dano was a female project manager in the events world and their friend was recommending them to a group of colleagues they were working with and this was before they were using the name Dan and before they were going under the male gender identity and they were being recommended they were like oh like this is amazing they do amazing work she's amazing and then nothing like they didn't pick her up they didn't hire her but then so Dan said, hey, can you just tell the same story, but but use use he and say Dan. And their friend basically just said said the same story. They have amazing skills. They have this resume and he his name is Dan. And, and then he was hired right away, basically. And so that that kind of like complete, you know, flip of uh, opinion of whether or not this person's capable just based on their identity. So for me, going back to me and considering um, whether or not I was non-binary, I really like the idea of being a capable and powerful woman. So the idea that I am capable and powerful and a, and a like a badass female, but I'm a female and then like proving to the world that I can do everything a man does in heels, like as a woman. And then that, that is what makes me powerful and makes me feel empowered. Whereas, you know, some people prefer to do it from a more male centric point of view, but like having those kinds of, you know, introspective questions with yourself and figuring out what makes you feel empowered, what gets you turned on. So that is why I like receiving and the word Valprehend because it's not passive at all. It's, it's actually very, very powerful to sort of be the one dropping the handkerchief per se. (laughs) I love it. I, what you just described there, I'm sure a lot of people out there have experienced where they, because of the societal standards and norms, and they don't necessarily fit into them, they start to question their masculinity or their femininity or their, their gender expression. And I think it behooves all of us to, to look at that, but to also look at, is it just that I don't fit into this little box that they're telling me I need to, because I identify as a feminist or I identify as a non-binary, uh, asexual person? Like, is it them or is it you? Is it a combination of the two? But I think looking through kind of try to look through maybe like someone else's eyes of the situation. How would someone else like take this in? Like, you know, is it just society or is it actually something internal? And when we can look at those societal factors, like telling us how we need to express ourselves, telling us how we need to receive, telling us how we need to give. And if those things don't align, then we know it's not us. Yeah. And the other thing I will say is it's okay to take a break, you know, like for a long, I think for like I, I was single for five years uh, in and out of college. And it's because I tried online dating. I tried online dating. I tried one night stands. Like I was doing what I thought I should be doing. Like when I got into college, I 
had come out of uh, like a seven month long relationship, <laughs> you know, and I, uh, my, my boyfriend actually broke up with me freshman year. And I kind of went on this um, rebound phase of, of doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing, which is like sleeping around and exploring, you know, my sexuality, figuring things out. And I found that I was coming out of these one night stands just like bawling, you know, and that's when I really had to stop and say like, hey, you know, I think maybe you shouldn't be crying right now. Like maybe like this is not the right thing for you because it doesn't feel right for you. And and it's it's okay to take a break, you know, like if you don't feel comfortable doing something, don't just don't do anything for a while. It's it's especially right now, you know, in the pandemic, I I can't imagine how people like, if you're online dating, if you're dating at all, like props to you, because it's there's so much, you know, checks and balances that are having to happen with with health that don't normally have to happen. But you know, it's it's totally okay to to not be in the dating sphere and not be, you know, exploring your sexuality for a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Something that's come to mind for me with all the pandemic stuff is, do you think that, you know, we're probably going to be asking future dates soon. Did you get your vaccination? You know, have you had an exposure, you know, before we go out on this first date or things like that? If we're willing to talk about that kind of stuff, do you think that it's going to increase people's chances of talking about when their last STI test was or if they got a positive result and there's something they need to talk about before they have sex? Um, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think it's also based on how open you are to those conversations prior to the pandemic. And unfortunately, our country is so divided right now that some people are perfectly willing to talk about it and and some people are not. Um, and um, it really it really depends on on the person. I, I would really hope <laughs> I would really hope that people that this motivates people to be more open about other things like SDI tests and, you know, herpes, previous experiences, kink, you know, their their political views. But um it might not. And that's just an unfortunate truth of, um, I don't know, we, we really do need to level the playing field and, and reconcile our differences with people, um, especially right now. <laughs> yes, I do agree with you. I do want to take a quick break. And after the break, let's talk about how we can encourage people to have some of those conversations, not just about COVID, but you know, what does that conversation look like around talking about STIs and kink and getting consent beforehand. Sound good? Yeah. Perfect. All right. It's time for a quick break. I promise it'll just be a minute. So stay tuned. I'll be right back after a few words that help me get paid. So we are back before the break. We left off. I had asked Lita, you know, what she thought about, uh, people are going to have better conversations around STIs. And I'm in complete agreement with you that while I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are asking questions about COVID exposure and vaccinations and things like that, there's going to be way fewer people out there who feel prepared um, or comfortable enough to talk about STI. So let's talk about how to relieve some of that discomfort. First off, let me ask you, what are some of the the tips or ways that you've um, guided people or encouraged people or modeled for people like what's that conversation look like to bring up STIs or testing or things like that? Um, well, I think not, I mean, first of, first of all, if you're going on a first date with somebody, um, you absolutely want to, you know, get to know them and get comfortable with them, um, and hold space with them you know, not, not necessarily feeling the need to like start off with those kinds of topics um, because you can definitely run into a situation where perhaps this person doesn't even jive with you emotionally. Maybe you get bad vibes, you know, so then you don't need to bring that up at all, you know, but if you do sort of go on like a first date and a second date, and especially right now, I think, if you're dating, hopefully you're staying socially distant and you're staying safe. If you see this going, mm-hmm. you know, 
somewhere where you do interact in person and you do, you know, let them into your your pod or your your personal bubble is just offering up your vulnerability and making sure you have strong boundaries. Basically, setting a boundary and being okay with the fact that if it's crossed, then it's a no, you know? It, it has to be. I find a lot of people women especially have this sense, unfortunately, where like, oh, well, you know, they'll change or she'll change or he'll change or, you know, and, or I can, you know, fix it or, you know, we can work on it or maybe it'll change down the line. And I find it's important to really listen to what people tell you is set down this boundary and say, Hey, like, here's my situation. You know, I have, you know, this or that STI, and this is what it's going to be like. Are you okay with this? Are you not? What are your perspective? And, and if that person crosses a boundary or seems closed-minded or, you know, they, they're like, oh, that's, you know, that's not okay. Like, you'll feel it. You'll know, right? And, you know, we'll just try. I mean, try and come back and say like, hey, like, this is how I, I would like things to go. This is how I, I wish that you'd reacted. Like, this is how it's worked for me in the past. Have an idea of, of what you would want their reaction to be. Have an idea of how you want that relationship to go and how that interaction to go. And give the person like a chance to come back. But if they continue to cross, you know, that boundary and you get, a, you get, you know, you, you feel unsafe. If you feel unsafe, then you feel unsafe and you just... It has to be a no, unfortunately. And um, yeah. I agree with you. And I have had people ask me, well, what if I tell them and they just don't even want to go out with me after that? I'm like, so what? Like, that's, then they're not your person. It is not about trying to convince people like to like you. Yeah, absolutely. And like having the confidence and the affirmation that, that there is someone like that for you. I mean, you... I, you, I find that a lot of people look for people who continuously cross their boundaries because they're uncomfortable setting those boundaries for themselves. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. I also talk to a lot of women who have continuously gravitated towards this air quotes, like bad boy type or, you know, bad girl vibe, you know, where like the people, there's this up and down, like when the highs are high, you know, it's great. But when the lows, they're like really low and they're down. And like, that's not, that's not what a relationship is supposed to feel like. I mean, you definitely, no. you know, get a dope hit when, you know, the highs are high. And unfortunately, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of psychological studies where abuse victims actually keep running back to those kinds of dynamics, you know, where they don't have to be in control and they don't have to set the boundaries for themselves because unfortunately to them, that is comfortable and that is safe. But, but in the greater scheme of things, it's, it's not, you should be able to tell someone your boundaries and, and tell someone, you know, your thoughts and your situation and have that person be open and comfortable with it, whether, you know, you're into multiple partners, um, polyamory, you know, kink, whether you have an STI, your gender identity, like whatever it is, your partner should be okay with that. And you should be okay with that. And you should feel safe. And there's even been, I've talked to women who just like, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard this come from a lot of folks where they, there's women that have been in these relationships for a long time and they finally are like, well, you know, I want something to change. I want someone who's safe. And they start dating someone who's safe and their body has like a natural like repulsion, right? To the good guy, to the guy who's there or to the mm -hmm. girl who's there, you know, the partner who's always present and available. And they're like, ugh, like, no, that, that, that's too close, right? Like that's, that's too much. They're all over me, but He's you know. He's too nice. She's too good. Exactly, exactly. And I, I would invite you to think about why that's uncomfortable for you and, you know, and be really vulnerable and, and take it slow. Like, as I said, slow it down. You know, if anything is uncomfortable, even if it's like that, even if it's in the other direction, slow it down and like really talk to your partner, maybe even say like, Hey, you know, this is new for me. Someone who's nice is new for me. You're, you're different than my normal type. Like I'm not used to this and I would really appreciate it if we take it slow so that I can explore this new dynamic for me. 
And don't, don't, you know, even if it feels like, ugh, like he's too nice, like give yourself some time, like give your body some time. Perhaps maybe this isn't the worst thing in the world, you know, like perhaps like, you know, something will grow. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, there's no pressure to, to keep this relationship going. But if that's what you're hoping for, if you're hoping for safety and comfort out of your future relationships, like slow it down be open, you know, be vulnerable and and don't be scared to, to set your own boundaries and, and you know, journal, <laughs> journal about what it is that, that you really want out of this or any relationship. What does your partner look like? Like, what are your turn ons? Really think about that. I, my hope is that this pandemic has gotten people to slow down in their dating process. You know, I, my clients are not going out you know, straight to the bar, straight to a restaurant for their first date, they're doing video chats and, uh, you know, doing fun things online and playing games together stuff like that. Uh, and yes, when they do meet, the ones who are reporting back to me are saying they are social distancing. But I've been talking to a lot of them about how more of that air of courting is back, that taking it slow, that people aren't just jumping straight into, this is my boyfriend after two weeks because we've already had sex five times. And we're together all the time and, you know, all that. They are having to actually slow down, get to know this person, check in with themselves and see like, how do I actually, you know, how am I connecting to this person? How, if they do eventually have sex, how are they connecting to their sexuality in a different way than it was when it was sort of that accelerated timeline before? Oh yeah. Um, I, I really hope that this pandemic is getting people to focus on, on what's important to them, you know, whether it's dating, whether it's not dating, whether it's, it's marriage and partnership or whether it's, you know, tuning into your own sexuality. I mean, I love the term that like the sexual unit is one person is yourself and you can absolutely explore it by Mm -hmm. yourself. You don't even need a partner, you know, (laughs) if it's self-pleasure, like, please, like, honestly, like, Tune Yes. I even posted on Instagram uh, yesterday, like, hey, February, bring me some great sex, even if it's just with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know this pandemic has gotten me to slow down and focus on what was important. I didn't start dating my partner until we officially call it uh, May, but we started seeing each other again like the week before everything shut down. But over this time, it, it did give both of us that ability to step back and understand what we really wanted in life. And so I hope for listeners out there, I, I know a lot of people have done some contemplation, but if you are single or you are in a partnership that's not fulfilling you the way that you really feel like you it could like, like if it's okay, but it could be better. Or if you're just completely like checked out, it's time to make some changes. It's time to focus on you and it's time to understand like what you really need in life. And, and like you say, maybe you need to do some integration work. Maybe there's some self-acceptance of your likes and your kinks and whatever it is that you're enjoying with whatever that outward personality is that you've got that, again, that those, the feminist ideals or, you know, you're, you're a social activist and you worry about how it would look if someone understood that you like to be bound and gagged and tortured (laughs) you know there's there's a freeness in accepting what you want and what you like and striving to live authentically that way every single day that's so well said yeah 100% agree with that so sexologists like Lita and I are here to help you with that (laughs) so reach out to us if you feel like you need some support with that But before we wrap up, I would like a little more information about body politic and some of the work that you've been doing there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am the project and operations manager currently for body politic, and I I am the secretary on their board. We are uh, we just came up with an executive board and are reincorporating as a nonprofit because um, we used to be a media and events collective. So we, we had events surrounding um, marginalized communities in the wellness space. Um, so people of color and fat folks and LGBTQ community. Um, and 
nutrition and sleep and events and, and articles talking about that. Um, and then when COVID hit, um, 60% of our team uh, got coronavirus and our founder, Fiona Lowenstein, um, is a journalist. So they wrote about their experience and they are 26 years old, 27, I believe now, but they were 26 um, and a yoga teacher. I mean, they were a yoga teacher uh prior to the pandemic. They were peak of health, young, you know, healthy, no prior existing conditions. And they they did get coronavirus and they did get hospitalized for it. Um, and we noticed that there were a lot of um, articles and conversations around not getting coronavirus. I mean, as there should be, you know, pre- prevention is important, but not a lot of pieces of media that were inclusive of folks that already had it. And so um, this inspired us to start an emotional support group um, on Slack. It's based uh, on Slack. It's a COVID patient emotional support group. So we are a virtual community for um, COVID patients and their caretakers. Um, And right now we are focusing on... um, patient advocacy. So we, we have a newsletter, um, and we have compiled resources. We have a recommended provider list for our community. Um, we have a patient led research team that sort of formed, (laughs) um, a life of its own within, um, our group and they are COVID patients doing research on themselves and, and our, um, community base, which is now up to 10,000 people, I believe, on this uh, one Slack workspace. Um, so yeah, we're, we're patient-led, we're care-centered, um, and we want to democratize these resources and get people informed on their care. Um, and, you know, talking to their doctor and having, having the kinds of conversations that we've been talking about on this podcast, but with their wellness providers, um, which is another area where that's not often, you know, discussed. I, I've heard a lot of people say that they've been gaslit, unfortunately, by their doctors, a lot of um, female and Mm -hmm. um, Black and African American women, especially being gaslit by doctors and people not um, believing that they had COVID and writing their symptoms off as anxiety. Um, And yeah, validation, I think is, is incredibly important, which this community provides. So yeah, if, if uh, listeners have, you know, COVID or if they know of somebody who has COVID, um, the numbers did, did grow quite high. So there's a lot of people out there looking for community. And when you're quarantined alone, um, we hope that you'll find it um, in the COVID support group. That's a lovely pivot that you all had to make there. Um, but you're doing what you have to do to support the community that was there in front of you. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we really hope to uh, keep going and not just advocate for people with COVID-19. Um, I mean, obviously, the effects of coronavirus will will stick around <laughs> for a few years, unfortunately, mm-hmm. at this rate. Um, even, I mean, a lot of people within our community have, have long COVID, which is... Um, coronavirus that that doesn't go away within two weeks. Unfortunately, these symptoms persist and turn into chronic fatigue and, and GI issues and headaches. Um, but we we also want to be historically informed. So there's um, an ME-CFS community um, and other people with other chronic illnesses that have been fighting this fight um, for a long time, sort of talking about um, ableism and, and disability and uh, holding conversations around that that are open-minded um and so yeah i mean we really want to advocate for for anyone um that that has a chronic illness or that has a disability and make sure that those people are also empowered to have those conversations well i think that's lovely because as you're talking about how this has started as you know a group to support people post-covid but when you kind of get them in the door and you're talking to them about one thing, it's so much easier to get them to advocate for themselves on another topic. So if they, you help increase their confidence to go talk to their doctor about, hey, I'm I'm still experiencing some symptoms. I don't I don't feel right. I need further treatment. You're ho- you can also help empower that person to then go to their gynecologist next time and say, hey, this is real. This pain I'm feeling is not right. I need pelvic floor therapy or 
you know, my erection strength isn't quite right. I you know, think something's like off kilter. What can you do to help me? And getting them to either increase their voices or find the doctor who's going to listen to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the, the person it's, it's, it's patient centered, but it's also, it's person centered. And I find that, um, in our, in our culture in America right now, um, that it, we're not, we're not really a life affirming culture. You know, we have all these doctors, first of all, you know, health insurance being dependent on your employment is, is not sustainable. Um, but also when you do have health insurance, you go to the doctor and there's, you know, an oncologist, a gynecologist, a therapist, a general practitioner, you know, (laughs) and there's all these people and they don't talk to each other. You know, they, they only deal with a certain subset of symptoms and they don't know that you are a whole functioning person, you know, perhaps, and so many times, you know, your mental health is tied to your um, general health, your, you know, your physical health, or like, perhaps, you know, if, uh, you know, um, women have pain with sex, like that's going to affect other areas of their well being. If people are chronically stressed, that that shows up in physical symptoms. And when your doctors don't talk to each other, they don't form a whole, you know, profile of the patient. And so it becomes a lot easier for people to not believe that you are struggling because they don't, they don't see the whole picture. You have 15 minutes with a doctor at a time and they're just like, oh, you know, this isn't serious and, and you're dismissed. It's a real problem. Absolutely. And it's compounded further and further and further every step you are away from being a white man. (laughs) Yep. If you are a woman, if you are a black woman, if you are a poor black woman. Yeah. Ooh, it gets my blood boiling when I think about some of these things. And I think about how many times marginalized people were used for experiments. They were put into jars to use as examples at medical schools their their bones were taken and used, you know, as as props to teach people. It, not many white people can say that that happened to their ancestors. Think about Henrietta Lacks and how her DNA was taken, and it has saved millions of people. But nobody knew who she was until there was a research paper done on where these cells came from. Like the medical community has far too long not only taken advantage of marginalized communities and used them. For experiments and for learning tools, they've also far too long prevented the people who were experimented on from having access to the information that was then gathered and created. Yeah, the medical yeah. breakthroughs um, and the treatments. Their names are erased from textbooks. The, the history is erased. The names are erased of these uh, marginalized people of color and women of color, um, and they don't they don't benefit from from the things that they not even provided to white people in the white community, but that that was taken from them um and that's Mm -hmm. a huge reason as to why you know women of color are not believed right now about their pain and about their suffering is because actually they have been the ones that were operated on without anesthesia i mean the whole like strong black woman trope exists because white doctors wouldn't waste anesthesia on black people and, and we don't realize that that is where that comes from. People, and, you know, white people don't experience that. And we think, oh, well, if we don't experience it, it's, it's not important. It's not important to talk about. It's not important to advocate. Um, but it is. It's, it's important to be informed not only about, about yourself, but the experiences of other people. And um, a quote I actually read recently that, that really speaks to me is, um, activism is to speak, but advocating is to listen and we can't move forward without both. Um, so yeah, I really hope that, that people are doing both. (laughs) I agree with you 100%, 100%. Well, Lita, this was a wonderful conversation today. So I would love it if you could tell the listeners how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, for sure. So I do have a website, which is just my last name, rubatova.com. And my primary social platform is Instagram at the moment. And that's just at Fearless Lita, um, Fearless Lita, L-I-D-A. And if you're looking for body politic and our resources on 
wellness and advocacy. That is wearebodypolitic.com. Um, and we do have a GoFundMe. Um, so if you would like to make a contribution, you can find us there at Body Politic COVID-19 Support Group. Perfect. And I will be sure to put all of that in the show notes for everyone. So if you'd like to help out Body Politic and support them, check out that GoFundMe, go to their website and get more information, or just find Lita at Fearless Lita or her website. So again, I so appreciated this conversation. There's a lot of people out there who I think really needed to hear this from from talking about the integration, uh, the consensual, non-consensual play, all that stuff. That was really, really good information for people to hear about. Yeah. And I really, I really hope it, it helps people to, to really realize that their identity is valuable and worthy of, of existing in whatever form it is, whether it's edgy, whether it's not that you are normal (laughs) and that you don't have to fit in a legal or a box. (laughs) Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. Well, Lita, I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. I wish you especially all the best with your SEU studies. Have some fun along the way. And of course, reach out if you need anything. All right. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thanks for listening to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. Please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast and check the show notes for stuff we talked about during the episode. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, and TikTok, but visit my website if you want more information about me and my coaching services. You can join my safe for work or not safe for work email list, which I call the Dirty Bird. If you want less censored content about sex and relationships and want to know what I'm up to, please subscribe to that list. Send me an email, Kristen at Open the Doors Coaching, if you have a question, want to book a session, or want more information on my upcoming workshops. My theme song is original music by M. Kusa. Until next time. <laughs>